to meet someone as well and, and get to know them a little bit. What is Christianity all about to you? And what is Christianity all about to others? So maybe other perspectives you've heard about the Christian faith. If you're a Christian, maybe you've heard people talk about Christianity who aren't Christian. Or if you're non-Christian today and, and curious about it, what have you heard Christians, how Christians have talked about the Christian faith, okay, in terms of what it's all about. So I'll give you guys three, four minutes, and again, make sure no one's left out, and we'd love to uh, have you enter into some conversation this morning. Check, check. All right. <clears throat> you know, when I think about the Christian faith and uh, a lot of conversations I've had with whether people are Christian or are not Christian, there's a lot of similarities, right? It can become very much about uh, ethical code. Being Christian means having good ethics, being a moral person, helping out the people around you, and there's an aspect of that, of that that's true. Other people talk about Christianity as being all about becoming a better person, a little bit different, right? Help serving others and caring for the community versus ourselves uh, being better and improving. Other people, when they think about the Christian faith, think about the rites and rituals, uh, going to church on Sundays, giving money to the church, going to small group, opening up scripture. At other times when we have grown up in the faith, um, things start adding on top of each other. And the laundry list just becomes really big. Sometimes when we think about becoming Christian or being a good Christian, it's almost an overwhelming amount of tasks, um, amount of things to do. And I think about what it means to me and, and, and what people have told me it means. And being a good pastor looks like waking up at 5 a.m. to pray, read the Bible, you know, fast twice a week, um, memorize like all kinds of theology books, and then to go out and be in the prison with the poor, right? Evangelize on the streets, um, talk to people who are sad. I, I think out of all of you who feel the expectations of being a good Christian, maybe I feel it most of all, right? Um, being a pastor, I probably have everyone's expectations put on me. And that's okay. I, I, I get that that's uh, part of the job. And, and if you've been Christian for enough time, you've felt that way too. I think you feel at times that there's just so much to do, and maybe you keep failing in your own eyes or in God's eyes, or the eyes of others, because of how long the list can become. Because how Christianity can be all about doing a bunch of different things. You know, this next month, we're going to spend our time pausing Matthew. We're walking through Matthew. We're in uh, chapter 15. We're going to pause it. We're going to skip to Matthew 22 and do three weeks there and then come back to Matthew 15. I think it's funny. I don't know if you guys think it's funny. Um, so Matthew 22 kind of has people carrying uh, their religious tradition with a lot of weight and with a lot of rules and with a laundry list of to-do. So hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So even among the Pharisees and Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they are contemplating this question because things have become enormously complex. 
Not only is there 615 Jewish laws or Old Testament laws, but many of them had babies, right? So like the law of the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath holy, had 400 other laws attached to it to define what it meant to rest on the Sabbath. They're not in scripture, but these teachers have gave, given implications of what this looks like. And it's become really heavy for a Jew to try to remember all the things that they're supposed to do. And so they started asking this question, and different teachers had different answers. What is the greatest commandment of the law? And they're not saying this in terms of neglect. They're not saying, is there laws that we can keep, and is there laws that we could just kind of put under the rug? They're actually asking a more fundamental question. When they talk about this concept of greater, they're saying, is there a law that all of these other laws are derived out of? Is there a law that all of these other laws are systemic from, that there's kind of this heart or this principle or a foundation behind everything else that we do? And different Jewish teachers had different thoughts about this because, again, this was a, a pretty normal part of the dialogue and discourse of religious leaders. So some people talked about the Ten Commandments, which is pretty uh, good summary of all of the laws. Others talked about not worshiping any other gods, serving him fully, keeping the Sabbath. And then Jesus says this. He replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, I think about this concept of loving the Lord your God as the most foundational piece of what it means to be Christian, but also how it's kind of shocking and surprising because it's easy to think about Christianity outside of love primarily. Going to church, going to Bible study, right? Making sure you're doing all the Christian things, not uh, sinning, being holy. It, it can easily become all these other commandments. And yet, Jesus says love is the most important, loving God. And then I also think about how it's strange to command love, right? If I said, hey, to be a part of Renew, you have to love me. Isn't that a strange command? <laughs> or if I tell Liam, like, okay, here are the house rules. Loving your dad is the most important. But then it also speaks to what this Christianity thing is all about. It's not primarily what we do. It's not primarily being good or bad or following uh, religious acts. It's primarily relational. It's primarily personal. It's primarily intimate. That this is the most important aspect of being Christian. And there's intimidating and almost invasive aspects to this command of love. It, 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 it kind of takes over um, and has implications that 
are a little bit scary. I remember being in Singapore, and um, I went on the craziest state. So when, you know, we always ask, hey, what's the craziest state you've been on? This is it for me. Um, I went, we went on a mission trip. I was kind of in a Bible school there, and there's this girl that I super vibed with, and like, she was really cute. I think that was most of the vibe. And then we were driving home, and I was like working up the courage to ask her for a number. This is before Coffee Meets Bagel, when you had to look a girl in the eye, you know, and uh, use your words instead of your fingers. And um, so I, I was like, okay, I'm going to ask her for a number. I'm going to say these words. I need to do it before she gets dropped off. I might never see her again. So I'm getting like butterflies and jittery. And then as I'm about to ask her, she turns to me because we're having other conversations. And she's like, hey, can I get your number? I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> no. I'm amazing. And then, um, I, I'm just messing. So I give her my number, and I was like, okay, I don't want to, you know, sound desperate, so I'm going to wait till the next morning to text her, maybe, maybe even midday, and ask her out on a date. And uh, I go to sleep. I'm really excited to text her the next day. You know, I have trouble falling asleep. And then next morning, I wake up, I look at my phone, and she had texted me. And she was like, hey, let's go grab dinner. I was like, this is easier than Coffee Meets Bagel and Tinder and every other. This is the best. And so anyways, I set up, uh, di I set up dinner with her. I asked her out to the movies to let her know, like, I'm also trying to. <laughs> and then we show up. We wait in line. Before I order my meal, she says, I'm ready to move to the U.S. with you and get married. That's fast. Yeah, I thought everything else was fast. That's really fast. I did a similar thing with Nina, by the way. <laughs> we started dating. I met her just kind of randomly, Korean barbecue, that whole story. And then um, I found out I lived like two minutes away from her. So we started going out every day. And then I asked her to be my girlfriend. And right around then, I, had this, I did a birthday party. This is probably four or five weeks after we met. I did a massive birthday party just to let her know I have a lot of friends and I'm cool. So <laughs> I got this mansion. We got like 70, 80 people to show up, you know. I walk in kind of late with her. We strut in together. What's up? Hey, guys. What's up? Good to see you. What up, man? And then um, I'm okay. <laughs> and then we got married. But um, you know what makes those stories really creepy and awkward? <laughs> Both of them? It's that there's, when, when she told me she wanted to marry me and move to the U.S. within, and I'm like, I don't know your last name, I don't know your story, or when I dropped the M-word on, on Nina and we haven't even, like, kissed before, there's this, oh, no, is that my fault? Um, there's this, um, <laughs> sorry, Andy, I think it's okay. Um, there's this sense that this whole commitment thing, right, Moving in together, making babies, sharing a family, sharing finances, sharing future is all extremely scary and creepy and frightening because there's no love, right? Love has not been established. I didn't, I didn't love her yet, and I'm pretty sure that she didn't love me. Um, Nina definitely didn't love me yet, <laughs> and I was, you know, my judgment was compromised at the time. Um, but then when we think about the Christian faith, we can do all these things, right? We could do all these commitments and 
it just feels scary. It feels obligatory. It feels awkward when we haven't fallen in love with God first. When we don't love him yet. It just kind of feels like, oh man, like you're asking a lot. You're like, you want way too much out of me. But when you love someone, when Nina fell in love with me a year and a half later, even though I did it in a month, um, getting married, moving in together, sharing family and finance and future, there was so much joy and peace, and, and um, we looked forward to it. And so when Jesus says that this isn't just um, the greatest commandment, which is what the teacher of the law asked him. He said, this is the first commandment. What he's saying is that before you do all these other Christian things, love me first, or else those things will be void and empty and obligatory and kind of creepy. Love me first. Fall in love with me. Let it be personal and intimate and relational, and then all these other things will be filled with meaning, will be joyful instead of burdensome and legalistic and just kind of religious rituals. But then I also think about us who have been Christian for a long time. You know, uh, me and Nina, we've been married for six years. I said five in there, and Nina's like, it's been six. I was like, oh, but it feels so, like, young and fresh still. Um, uh, when we've been married for a while, we can do these things that we, we've done every year, right? And, and did it because we were in love. We, we, do, we started off all these traditions like washing the dishes and dates night and buying gifts on Christmas because we were in love. But then after five years and 10 years and six years and 20 years, we've seen marriages and me and Nina have gone through seasons where we're doing these things but we forgot to love first. We forgot to first love. And we're just caught in a rhythm. And it's like, I'm going to buy you a gift so you're not mad at me. We're going to keep date night because it's on the calendar. We're going to share a meal together because I don't want to sit at another table. But we're not really in love. And I wonder, for those of us who have been Christian a long time, maybe that's our relationship with Jesus. We're not really in love, but it's Sunday morning. We're not really in love, but the offering basket's being passed around. We're not really in love, but we're supposed to open up our Bibles in the morning. And that's why it says, Jesus is saying, it's not just the greatest commandment. It's not just a commandment in which all the other commandments are derived out of and rooted in, right? If we do any of his commands without loving first, it feels like an obligation. It's also the first commandment. Do this first. When you do the other things first, you're doing it wrong. When you do the other things first, it doesn't really matter to him. So as we stepped into church today, did we say, I'm here, was our first move into this place a move towards loving Jesus? When we sang the first song, was our move into worship a move towards loving him and being loved by him? Or was the song just playing? When we open up scripture in our time of study, is it a move towards loving him? Because that comes first. 
love first. And then lastly, I think about how he can command us to love. You know, um, how he can command us to love because he first loved us. It says in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. It says in John chapter 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He's asking our first move to be loved because his first move precedes our first move. And his first move is love. And love in the most sacrificial way. He died on the cross for our sin. And then he loves us in not this emotive, like up and down, kind of flimsy and flaky, come and ghost type of way. He invents marriage. Marriage and this commitment, death to us part, of sickness and in health, um, you know, forsaking all others, that comes out of God's covenant with Abraham and with us. Marriage is simply a reflection of God's first love, a marriage kind of love. A, I love you forever, no matter where you are, what you've been, what you've done, I will love you. He loves us like that. He wants to marry us. He wants to have a lifelong relationship with us. And he proves it by allowing his son to be sacrificed for our sin so that we can enter into that relationship with him. Now, I want you to kind of feel that awkwardness again. Because when this girl tells me she wants to move to the U.S., there's not a lot of options from there. I can't be like, but let's just be friends. Or like, let's just hang out a little bit. When I ask Nina to marry me, there's not a lot of options, right? If I come at her with, let's spend the rest of our life together, everything else is an insult except for yes. Everything else belittles love except for yes. And when we think about what it means to be Christian, why God says to love me, what, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, is because he loves us like that. And he loved us like that first. What else, how else can we respond, right? If I say, Nina, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, and she's like, let's just be friends. What is that? What does that look, what does that even mean? There's no other response, and yet, it's easy to be Christian and think there is. It's easy to say I'm Christian and think that you can have a God who's asking, who's telling you I'm willing to commit to you, to walk through all of your life with you. And by the way, I'm God. It's not just your, this hot girl or guy you're thinking about. It's not just celebrity you follow. I made this whole thing and I'm saying that I love you. And you just want to be friends. <laughs> like, does that work? I think what Jesus is saying is that there's only one response. Hey, if, if it takes you a while to understand God loves you, if you need to hang out with us for a while to get it, that's okay. But what's not okay is just friends for 20 years. Or I'm going to be Christian on Sundays. Or I'm really worshiping this one woman or money or my career or being bipolar because the stock market's going crazy and that's what's really controlling my mood. Those things don't have a place 
for what God is offering us. I wonder this morning when Jesus says, I love you, when he says, I love you so much that I allowed my body to be broken for you and my blood to be spilt on the cross. When he says that, what will your response be? What do you say back to him? Father, we come to you this morning. And I know we're in a lot of different places, in a lot of different parts of the journey. But I I pray that today we would know you love us in this radical, sacrificial, scandalous way. And that it would be kind of awkward. And maybe what we've been doing would feel like it's not what you're really asking. The command isn't to show up on, on church on Sundays. The command isn't to put Christian posts up. The command isn't just to do religious rituals. The command is to love. And I pray that this morning as we grapple with how extraordinary your love is, that it would push us to respond in kind or to say, maybe I just need some time, but what I'm doing right now maybe isn't what the Christian faith is all about. I just want to give you a minute to hear Jesus say, I love you, and I died for you, and I want you to be a part of my family. He's saying that to you right now. I love you. I died for your sins so that you could be a part of my family. What will your response to him be? And maybe even for the first time, you're going to say, God, I want to love you too. I want to ask for your forgiveness and I want to follow you. Give us a minute. God, we've been taught a lot of things about what it means to be Christian or Catholic, but I'm thankful, Jesus, that you made it about one thing. And I pray that this year as a church, we would be about this one thing. That we wouldn't be distracted by the task list, um, you know, our schedule and routine. But that even if we're doing the same thing, we would do it with loving you first. We would step into all of our service here with love. And that we would do that heart check over and over again. I pray that at the end of this year, there would just be this this passion for you, Jesus. These stories that erupt out of our love where it doesn't become just something removed or impersonal, but you would have loved us in really specific ways, in ways that are invasive and life-changing and wonderful. And then everything else we do would, would be easy and joyful and, and filled with meaning. God, as we take communion this morning, I pray that we would step into the aisle, we would step up to the communion table 
with love in our hearts first for you, to experience your love for us, that we would love first. As we sing these songs, Lord, and as we take offering, that we would, we would pause to love, to say that we, we want to love first, and then sing. We want to love first and then give, and help us to approach the rest of our lives like that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite you to take communion, to stand and take communion with us. And then we have some people around the communion table, the Changs and also the Jungs and myself. We would love to pray for you uh, if there's something on your heart or if you just want to um, know that God loves you through a prayer. We would love to extend that, extend that to you. Will we all stand for communion?